you're listening to the teaching podcast of Crossridge Women's Studies from our fall 2021 study of the Psalms. Okay, so we're here tonight to talk about Psalm 84 and Psalm 88. And so I worked really hard to try to find some good paraphrases for you, but with Psalm 84, I just kept running into a Matt Redmond song from the 90s. You know it. And once you get that song in your head, you can't really get it out of your head. And I just had these, it just really brought back to memory, just like singing the chorus, maybe five too many times, five or six too many times at Trinity. And it's always in too high of a key to Matt Redmond. So, but, um, but it was really easy to find a paraphrase for Psalm 88 because I remember I had this, we had this neighbor in Hawaii and her and her husband were from somewhere in the Midwestern US and they retired to come um, live in Hawaii. And so they moved into the condo right next to ours. And her dream was always to live in Hawaii and have a car that was covered with um, bumper stickers because that's what you do. And I actually have a daughter who has that same dream. Someday she wants a vehicle covered in bumper stickers. So anyway, and she had a bumper sticker. She slowly over time just got more and more. She was living the dream. And one of her bumper stickers said, life is hard and then you die. <laughs> and I thought that's Psalm 88. Life is hard and then you die. So that's what I came up with. And then um, yesterday in our staff meeting, Pastor Lee said that was his paraphrase for Nehemiah. So apparently there is a lot of that um, in the Bible. But we're going to dig a little bit more into that Psalm 88 later. For now, we're going to start with Psalm 84. As we spend some time as a large group uh, discussing our observations from Psalm 84, we try to focus on the imagery. Psalm 84 is a, a really easy psalm to practice looking for imagery as it's quite vivid, these word pictures that the psalmist paints for us. So first of all, we went through and we identified what were the main images in the poem. We saw this picture of the sparrow's nest or the swallow's home and these birds in the courts of, of the temple near the altar. There was an image of a, a pilgrimage, this journey. There were words like highways in the ESV and, and places to Zion. And there was a sense of, of this journey, whether it was actual or whether it was figurative, we weren't sure, but we saw this idea of a pilgrimage. There's also, in the middle of the poem, there's this picture of this valley, the Valley of Baca. And a few of us had, had looked into our study notes to see what that meant. And scholars have a couple ideas. They, they cannot identify a place known as the Valley of Baca in the Holy Land. And so there's two things that it could be. It could mean the Valley of Weeping, as that word could mean weeping. Uh, this low place, this difficult place, this hard and sad place. 
Or it could also, that word baka, refer to trees like, like balsam trees that grow in very dry and arid places. And in that sense, we might consider this picture of the Valley of Baca a very dry valley. And whether or not there's a lot of weeping and tears or it's a dry valley, they actually both interestingly carry the same connotation. It is this difficult place a journey through a difficult place. And yet in the midst of that central image, there's more imagery. There's this idea of spring water that those who are traveling through are, are making a dry valley, a source of spring water. Well, how do you do that other than digging wells? So you can find the spring water that comes deep out of the ground, but also there's more water coming, isn't there? There's this picture of God sending rain. So not only are the people digging for spring water, but God is sending rain into this dry valley. There's also uh, an image at the end. It's, it's an, a metaphor, actually, in verse 11. It says, For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. And we talked a bit um, as a large group about what does the sun represent? What does the sun give? What should we think about God from this image? And what is a shield? What does the shield represent? And what ought we think about God from that image? And as we moved through these images, the next question came out is that what emotion does this imagery intend to evoke? What is it trying to stir in us? What understanding in our feelings and our heart should we have um, from these word pictures that the psalmist so vividly paints in Psalm 84? Some of the emotions that we suggested were Ideas like safety and belonging and peace. We saw that very clearly in this picture of small, insignificant birds finding a home in the tabernacle. There was a place for them. They could belong there and they could be safe there. It, it is a peaceful picture of a bird and their nest and their young. There's also this feeling that comes out of longing and love and yearning are actually the words that are used later on it says their hearts are set on it like there is a choice a desire a want there's also emotion of hope in that dry valley of baca isn't there that even in these hard difficult times through moving towards god through journeying towards god to be before god in zion that there is hope that those who who dare to dig blessings out of the hardships of life actually find hopeful sustenance and refreshment. There's a feeling of confidence and trust in this picture of God as sun and shield. Ultimately, in the Old Testament, when it talks about the sun and the shield, it's a picture of protection and provision. The sun as this provision from God and the shield as protection. And if you studied the Psalms with us in the summer, we, we talked about the prayers of lament and how they were always requesting these two things of God, protection 
and provision. And this itself is a bit of a lament psalm. It is more hopeful than some of the other um, lament psalms, but it is a lament. And you, you sense that, that the psalmist is desiring provision and protection from God. And that's not just a design pattern out of the laments. It's from the whole Old Testament, isn't it? We see that as God's people were on their own journey to this place where he had told them he he would live with them and dwell with them in this promised land as they're on their way through that journey. What does God provide for them the whole way through protection from enemies and provision by the way of water from rocks manna from heaven there's also this ending sense of, of happiness and joy in fact the last verse says happy is the person who trusts in you Lord of armies we see this hopeful declaration that the Lord grants favor and honor he does not withhold the good from those who walk uprightly from those who walk completely in their design of walking with him and in him and those two words God's favor and honor are two uh, very common words in the Old Testament and going to be in the New Testament um, when they're translated into Greek but they are the words ken and kavod and really that's grace and glory The Lord grants grace and glory to those whose hearts are undivided, who are completely set on living with him, being with him, dwelling in his presence. That is the key to the flourishing life. And if you thought that verse 12 reminded you of something, it did. And it ought to. It takes us all the way back to Psalm 1, doesn't it? That very first psalm we talked about. This flourishing life, this tree. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the way of the wicked. And here it says, who walks how? Uprightly, completely, with an undivided heart. One who, whose delight is in the law of the Lord, Psalm 1 would have said. Flourishing is linked to this idea of living with the presence of God, of making our way to the presence of God. And overall, Psalm 84 gives us this picture of peace in the midst of difficult circumstances, even like exile. And it's because we can have the presence of God. Whether or not this was an actual journey or just a figurative journey, we don't know. But even if it is a figurative journey, what does verse 7 say? That those who decide in their hearts to make this journey, to dwell in the presence of God, they will go from strength to strength. Grace upon grace upon grace, the New Testament says, right? Even in difficult circumstances, joy, sustenance, provision, protection can be experienced and found when we desire and seek to be with him, to dwell in the presence of God. So that left us with a question. It's kind of a big question and a hard question to ask, but we talked about it together. 
Why don't you listen in while we grapple with this idea is of how do we get to the presence of God? What then does it mean for us when there's no longer the, the tabernacle or the place to go? What does it mean for modern believers to dwell and live in the presence of God? One of the big questions that Psalm 84 sort of that comes out of this is um, how do we get to the presence of God? How do we get to the presence of God? What does that even mean? Um, I, I don't want to ask the question, have you put up your hand? But I, I think it's a good question to, to consider how many people, and don't answer, just think about it, but struggle with this concept of the presence of God because it's not um, concrete, right? It's not objective. It's quite subjective. And depending on your tradition, your church tradition, you can have different ideas um, about what that means or what that is. But the real question is, how do you dwell? How do we dwell in the presence of God? How do we do that? Um, so we, we mentioned before that there's this idea of this longing for, for God's presence. And first, the people, the people that would have experienced this, like they, they knew where to to dwell in the presence of God. They went to the, the tabernacle and then later they went to the temple. That was an easy answer for them. But for, um, for us, it gets a little bit trickier. After the temple and the, ta the, tab after the tabernacle and the temple, um, ne the next place that we often talk about as where the presence of God was, was when Jesus came to earth, right? Uh, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. He made his dwelling. So. Uh, if you were Peter or Paul or or Mary um, or Mary Magdalene, like you you could go to the presence of God. You knew where to find the presence of God, right? We've talked about this before. He he was at my house for supper, right? He was he was eating at Matthew's, the tax collector. He went to a party there. Like the presence of God was actually a place there in the Holy Land, moving around. They could be on a boat with the presence of God. Um, and then after he leaves, we know from the biblical story that the next place we encounter the presence of God is at Pentecost. And then Acts 2 talks about um, there being like wind and fire, or wind filling and loud noises filling this whole room where they were all gathered. And then images that look like tongues of fire coming down and resting on each one, but all of them together kind of too. Um, and so from then on, we would say like, like the presence of God were in the believers, right? They were filled with the spirit, not just um, individually, but also corporately. And we talk about Paul later on says, don't you know, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. God's presence now dwells in you as a believer, as one who is one with Christ. Um, and and Peter talked about it that way too, right? Remember when we did First Peter, we always talk about this living stones being built up together to be a house, um, the uh, the presence of God, the house where He dwells. Um, so there is some distinct sense, like I, I think we need to see both here, like that as individuals we're a temple, but also as as a church body we are the temple. 
So this is why we keep harping on everybody and saying it's really important that we gather because there is a very distinct sense in that as we gather together, we are housing the presence of God right now. As we come here tonight in the center of Cloverdale, right in the heart of Cloverdale, the presence of God is here, right? People could come and walk in off the street and, and they could have a very real encounter with the presence of God. This is what we believe because the Bible says this, not just Peter, it's in Ephesians and stuff, um, other places. The New Testament apostles believe this, they taught it. Um, and when you, we think about it individually, I often think about um, this little book. You guys, lots of you probably know it, very famous, written by Brother Lawrence, Practicing the Presence of God. You can actually get it for free, I think, now if you Google it. Um, like they, it's so old or whatever, you can download a PDF of it. And it's a short little thing, but um, Brother Lawrence always, I had to read it when I was in grade seven. And he talked about keeping um, God's presence in the forefront of your mind. I remember this one part, he's talking about like, as you're doing the dishes, like what does it mean to do the dishes in the presence of God? And it might sound kind of silly, but it wasn't to him. It was like he wanted to keep the presence of God. He, he, he believed. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was a living temple. The living God lived in him. So what did it mean for him to remember that? That he was a living temple, that the presence of God was always with him. Um, and I think something else that it reminds me of, or we talk about often, is this idea of, of spiritual disciplines or spiritual rhythms and spiritual routines. These are ways that we... Um, open our eyes or sort of focus on the presence of God in our life. These are ways that we are, that we can be with God and have communion and experience that his presence is with us. So first of all, um, things like prayer practices and routines and rhythms. Um, there's lots of different ways you can do this with prayer. What's your, what is your prayer rhythm? How do you pray? Is it just like, oh, when something happens, you got to pray? Or or are, do you have regular, do you set your day by the presence of God so that in the morning I pray this and, you know, at night I pray this way? Or um, in the middle of the day, lots of people just have that, like three times a day. And it doesn't have to be long. There's actually, like, we did a whole study last summer on the Lord's Prayer, right? There's a lot of ways that you can just pray even now. You're praying the Psalms. Right? You're experiencing what that means to um, remember that God is far and also near as you, as you pray. Uh, daily meditating on the scriptures goes right along with that. Regular fasting, things like regular giving and solitude and simplicity. All these things remind us of what is real or true about the world. So we don't tell you these things to be a good Christian. We tell you like, hey, we recommend these spiritual disciplines to you because when you're doing it, it is making your mind aware of the presence of God. Oh, I'm fasting today, and I'm remembering that he is daily bread. And when I'm hungry, I remember, oh, he is true sustenance. He fills me, and his presence is abundant and life-giving and enough, like we learned when we... Uh, we're studying through Mark. Things like regular Sabbath, not just as a practice of like, so Sabbath means to stop and delight, 
So stop your work and delight in God. Like stop messing around with all this stuff down here for a minute and like delight in the presence of God. What does that look like for you? How do you do that? And then regular gathering with the body of Christ is often a part of that um, Sabbath, but also it is that is one of the spiritual routines that we do um, in order to say we want to keep the presence of God at the forefront of our minds. And it sounds really simple to say, read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. I feel like I see that all the time. And I sing that every time I'm in that toddler, two-year-old two room, because it's actually true. And we want to make this so hard or whatever. And you know what? It is hard. It's, it's a practice. It's faith muscles have to be exercised. And sometimes it gets a little creaky and it's hard. But it actually is just very simple and plain before us. It's not hard to figure out. It might just be hard to um, just to give yourself to it. Um, I, I love this quote from Charles Spurgeon. This is what he said. Not merely to be in the assembly, but to appear before God was the object of each devout Israelite. Would to God it were the sincere desire of all who in these days mingle in our religious gatherings. So that's kind of, you know, Spurgeonist language. But just saying, like, wouldn't it be amazing if it were the sincere desire of all who these days mingle in our religious gatherings? Unless we realize the presence of God, we have done nothing. The mere gathering together is worth nothing. It's just a club, right? It's just hanging out with your friends like you can do anywhere else. There is something very distinct. Mark Sayers, a little bit younger, but equally, equally wise, says this, disciplines without the presence of God become empty religious activity. So I guess I just want to say it's not a formula. I don't want to offer you a formula, but it is faith. And also you can ask. We can ask for the presence of God. We ought to. And I mean, it's with us. So more like we're asking for God to open our eyes and be aware of it. Right? Um, something that you, we see a lot, I think, in, in these psalms in this book is this idea of the presence of God with this with this distinct word every time it says the presence of god in the old testament the word is panim p-a-n-i-y-m panim that's the hebrew word and it means face so it means the face of god the presence of god you're longing for the face of god and we used to talk about this all the time when we were over in the 58 in that tiny little room with nine women or 12 women but we would say what is it you're longing for, your, his hand or his face? Because there's a difference between um, being in relationship with God for what he can give you and actually just who he is, right? Um, so I always like to look at that. Whenever it says the presence, I always remember that's the panim, that's the face of God. And this relationship in this, I think the reason why it's positive is because it talks about it. It exudes value. 
like the psalmist sees this relationship in the presence of God as valuable. So verse one says, how lovely. And actually that's beloved. It's like Song of Solomon. It is the language of love poetry. That's what it is. Verse two, I long and yearn. And there's a commentator, uh, Dan Lewis, and he says, an appetite for God. Not just like desiring, it's an appetite for God. Verse five, happy are those, we already talked about this, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. There's this active pursuit of the presence of God, even in the difficult dry places. Um, Derek Kidner is another commentator. Let me read you his quote. He says, the joyful expectations of the pilgrims transform the difficult ways into places of refreshment. By God's benevolent care in, in relationship over his pilgrims, the valley of weeping or balsam trees already transformed by the glad hearts of expectant wayfarers is turned into a valley of praise. Um, two quick concluding thoughts, because we're quickly running out of time. This is this. The journey to the presence of God, for what it's worth, I think is the only road trip that will have you moving from strength to strength rather than from strength to fatigue and strength to weakness, right? I think that's a, that's a really important verse, verse seven, from strength to strength. And secondly, I would encourage you to consider what it means to build your nest near the altar, near the altar. When I had very little kids, this was my very one of my very favorite psalms. I found this one time and I thought, isn't this interesting? Why would the sparrow build her home near the altar? Isn't that a very dangerous place to put your nest? Isn't it bloody and messy? Isn't there a nice tidy corner somewhere far away from where all the entrails are coming out? of the sacrifice. I, when um, my husband and I were uprooting our kids from everything they knew and loved and taking them to the mission field, I thought about this psalm a lot and I prayed that God would help me to build my nest near the altar. And even though that's a place of sacrifice, this psalmist knew that was the place that's the best place to raise your young. Uh, at the central place where you commune with God, where he is there and living and active, and it's messy and it's dirty and it requires sacrifice. But that is the best place to make your heart's home and then to actually, yeah, really raise your young from there. Um, I think that's a, you know, we said, is this sad? Is this happy? I think that this whole psalm is like a beautiful picture of peace in the midst of difficulty. And like the sparrow and the altar, that's it. Peace in the midst of sacrifice. And, and actually it points to Jesus because of that, right? Jesus brings peace through the shedding of blood. Um, scripture doesn't say that the flourishing life, the happy life, is easy, but it is the way to peace and it is worth it. So.
Okay, friends, I don't know about you, but some of us found it very hard to turn the page from that peaceful, hopeful beauty of Psalm 84 to the darkness of Psalm 88. So we decided that we were going to do it together. And as we gathered, we had Psalm 88 up on the board and, and we just went through it together and and we looked for some key observations that led us to find some structure that actually opened our eyes to something beautiful about Psalm 88 that is definitely not apparent upon first, second, I don't know, maybe even third reading. So if you're able to do that with me right now, I would encourage you to grab your study guide and open it to Psalm 88 or grab your Bible and open to it. If you are walking right now or you're driving or you're folding laundry, it is okay. You can listen along and maybe just have a look later. But I am excited for you to see what we saw as we took our markers to that whiteboard and started really looking in a very literary way at this psalm that appears on the outside to be the darkest and most negative psalm in the entire collection, in the entire book of 150 psalms. So before we jump right in though, let's look at the title. This um, psalm is written by a man named Haman. Um, and if you did some cross-referencing, you saw in 1 Kings 4.13 that, or 4.31, sorry, that, that Haman was wise. And we know he's wise because he's sort of offered as this plumb line to which Solomon is measured. 1 Kings tells us that Solomon was wiser even than Haman, the Ezraite. And uh, if, if, if Solomon was wiser than Haman, if Haman is, is who they put up as the wisest person they knew, and even Solomon uh, was wiser than him, well, what we do know is that Haman was wise. And just from a quick cursory first read, I think we can say that he, he had a hard life. He suffered. He dealt with sickness or illness or some kind of suffering and, and near-death experience from his youth, he says. And it appears by all accounts that it, it ended in his death, in darkness, actually. Um, so if this man was so wise, it's interesting to me um, to ask this question, why does he pray? because this seems like hopeless suffering. At that point, do you not even just give up when you've been praying like that from your youth? Well, let's dig in and let's try to see what Haman has um, to say about all this underneath these dark layers. First of all, when we started looking at some of the repetition, one of the first things someone saw is um, this phrase that's repeated three times in verse 1, it says, I cry out. It's the second line of the psalm. Lord God of my salvation, I cry out before you day and night. Those words, Lord, I cry out, is repeated again in the second half of verse 9. Lord, I cry out to you all day long. It sounds a lot like the second line of verse 1. And then we see it again even in verse 13. But I call to you for help, Lord. 
sounds very familiar. It sounds like he's crying out to Yahweh. And even the second half of that says, in the morning, my prayer meets you again. There's this reference to a time of day, day and night, all day long and in the morning. Haman definitely did not give up his praying, did he? Some of the other repetitions that we began to see was uh, death and the grave. We marked it in verse 5, and then we saw it again in verse uh, 15, and let's see, oh, in in verse 11, we saw uh, this picture of darkness in verse 6, and then in actually the very last verse. In the CSB, it says, darkness is my only friend. But in the ESV, it says, my companions are darkness. And that seems a little bit clunky compared to the CSB, darkness is my only friend. You really get the sense of that. But what it does miss in the CSB is that this poem ends with the word darkness. That is the final note that is sounded by the psalmist, is darkness. Uh, There's uh, something that you might not see as easily if you're not looking in the original language or depending on your translation, but in verse 5 it talks about those who are cut off, cut off from your care. That's actually covenant language. We recognize that in the Old Testament as we are cut, you know, you are cut off from the covenant. And that exact same word is actually in verse 16. The CSB translated, your terrors destroy me, but it's that same word, your terrors cut me off. In a similar way, there's um, this picture of wrath in the beginning and in the end. There's the word presence and your face. There's the idea and repetition of this um, phrase, you have distanced me from my friends or you have distanced loved ones and neighbor from me. There's a repetition in in verse 8 that says, I am shut in and cannot get out. And then we see it again in verse 17. It says, they surround me like water all day long. They close in on me from every side. It sounds the same. And speaking of water, we see that a few times too. We saw it there in, in 17. And we see it again in verse 7 where the psalmist is overwhelmed with all Um, God's waves. So the more we go through it, um, we started seeing this, all these, this repetition. And specifically, we could see that a lot of what was said in the beginning was said in the end. And if we took those repetitions of Lord, I cry out, and I cry out, and but I call to you as three different chunks, we saw a lot of similarity between the first chunk and the last chunk. So let's say that the structure of this psalm could be divided into three parts. Uh, If you're a poet, you call those paragraphs in a poem strophes. So S-T-R-O-P-H-E. But you can just call them a chunk if you like. And so we said maybe the first section is from verse 1 to the end or the middle of verse 9. And that this second section would maybe be verse 9b all the way to the end of 12 and then verses 13 to 18 would be the third and final part 
Whenever you see three parts like that in a psalm, and especially when you see a lot of repetition and parallels between the first and the final or the third part, it makes you think, or it should make you think, of this Hebrew way of writing called a chiasm or chiastic structure. We've talked about it before in study, but basically you can think of it as a sandwich. There's a piece of bread, then there's the meat, then there's another piece of bread. And that just sort of um, illuminates for you sort of the top and the final part or the first and the third part being very similar. And then in the middle, that's where the meat is. And in Hebrew literature, that is where the meaning and the important point was. And we often call it the central axis. So let's say for Psalm 88, the central axis is that middle section, 9b all the way to the end of, of verse 12. Well, the next question we ask then, what's different about it? If, if there's similarities between 1 and 3, sorry, I dropped my book, look at that. What is different about the second section? And right away, someone pointed out that it was full of questions. So we know that this psalm is a lament from all the, the negativity and the darkness. Um, but what happens in the middle section is that it becomes what we call an accusatory lament. It's not just personal complaint. He's actually, in a way, accusing God. He's asking all these big questions, and we see these question marks. So then let's look at, at that a little bit closer and say, can we find a structure in this central axis? Is there some sort of a structure amidst all these questions of God? Is there anything that parallels or repeats or, or can be chunked together? And right away we saw in the beginning this, uh, this idea of parallelism. It says, Lord, I cry out to you all day long. I spread out my hands to you saying the same thing twice just in different ways those are both prayer postures or ways of praying crying out to God and spreading out my hands those are both ways that the Old Testament um, writer would have talked about praying then afterwards we have two questions that start with do do you work wonders for the dead do departed spirits rise up to praise you then we have two questions that start with the word will and these questions are a kind of parallelism that we call synthetic because it says a statement and then expands on it a little bit. So listen to this. Will your faithful love be declared in the grave? Your faithfulness in Abaddon? Will your wonders be known in the darkness? Or your righteousness in the land of oblivion? And right in the middle of those lines is this interesting little word, Selah, Selah. And it means stop and reflect. And if you look closely, you see that that actually is right in the middle. This section in, in the Hebrew poetry is eight lines. And while that might not mean too much in modern poetry, it means a lot in Hebrew poetry. So there's four lines and then there's Selah, and then there's another four lines. And if you look at this very center, this idea of stopping and reflect, there are two questions, one on either side. That is the center 
of this central axis. And here are the two questions that are at the center then. Do departed spirits rise up to praise you? Will your faithful love be declared in the grave? We asked at the beginning, why does this man still pray? He is obviously suffering. And yet we see here he prays day and night, in the morning, all day long. He does not stop. Psalm 88 shows us this pattern. In this life, there is suffering. To say that there is not, is not biblical. It is not true of scripture. Sometimes even life ends in darkness, where there is no light, no understanding, where it just does not make sense. Sometimes it even ends in death for those who faithfully prayed, who faithfully, like Haman, trusted in God. You know that's true, don't you? You can point out times where good people died, where people who trusted the Lord were taken away way too soon. And what is left on earth here and the people who are left behind, it grieves your heart with just how dark it is and how it seems like there can be no light and no meaning. Why on earth? Why on earth does this man still pray? Why should you still pray if you know that that could be a possible ending for your suffering? And of course, the answer that under, or the question that undergirds all of this is, how can a good God even allow this kind of suffering? How can he be good? I think what I've started to see in Psalm 88 over the past week is that the answer can be found in that central axis. And I don't know if, if my learning will change and grow. I assume that it will. But right now, can I tell you, friend, I would be very hard-pressed if someone said to me, how can a good God allow suffering how can there be suffering in this world and how can I trust him and how can that be okay if life might just end in darkness, if my suffering might just end in darkness? I would be hard-pressed to send them to any other scripture that answers that question better than Psalm 88. So let's look at that. Let's look at the central axis. What is the answer it offers to us? Listen to these questions again and tell me, friend, what is the answer? Do departed spirits rise up to praise you? Will your faithful love be declared in the grave? What's the answer to these questions? Surely Haman did not know. He asked them. But do you? Do you know? 
I hope that you are wherever you are yelling out, yes, yes, the answer is yes, because the answer is yes and amen to these questions in Jesus Christ. Haman, this wise psalmist, I think he was a prophet. I think he was pointing forward to a greater reality, something true that was reality that would be true in the Messiah. Do departed spirits raise up to praise you? Lazarus did. So did Jairus' daughter and so did Peter's mother-in-law and countless others in the New Testament. In fact, in Acts, that phrase right there, rise up, is used about Jesus 44 times. Forget about all the times it's in the Gospels. The apostles, after Jesus left, he, they couldn't stop talking about people being raised up. Because that's what happened to Jesus. The resurrection was so real. It, was, it made all the difference to them. They couldn't stop talking about it. And that second question, will your faithful love be declared in the grave? Well, greater love has no one than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. Those are the words of Jesus in John 15, 13. And what about Romans 5, 8? But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Love declared in death. The answer to this suffering here on earth is eternal life. It is the resurrected life. There is more to life. And no matter how it ends here, for for those who are in Christ, for those who know Jesus, who have made their home with him and put their trust in him for their salvation, for their eternal salvation, life never ultimately ends in death and suffering. Even if that's how it appears here on earth. No, it ends with joy and life everlasting. That is the truth. So maybe a better paraphrase for Psalm 88 should be something like, life is hard and then you die. But death is not the end for those who put their trust in the Lord. This is what it means to live in light of eternity or with this spiritual sight instead of earthly sight. And oh friends, in the midst of our dark um, and dry valleys, I just pray that you would dig those wells and be refreshed by that truth. That whatever happens here on earth for you who are in Christ, death and darkness is not the end. Thanks be to God. Okay. In order to get you home at a decent time, and I still want you to be able to pray together, I, I just have five minutes of maybe some context for you to go into the next book, which is book four, um, and the two Psalms where we're going to be stopping over the next two weeks. So every week I've come to you and said, okay, here's the theme, and that's from 
um, a, a write, an author and a teacher and a scholar named O. Palmer Robertson. And so he said, book one was confrontation, book two was communication or invitation, and book three was devastation. So now we're moving into book four and his um, title for this grouping of Psalms is maturation. I don't really like it. Um, I, I don't feel like everything has to have, you know, the same sound or alliterated, like we're not Presbyterians. Um, but, you know, he's he's going for that, you know, the that. But uh, anyway, I'll, I'll sort of tell you what he means by it. And that is that this devastation of exile, when you've gone through that difficult valley, it actually brings about growth. It matures the believer. It grows faith. It brings spiritual sight in new ways. So this is just about like maturing because of exile or hard, this, the, the hard um, circumstances or situation. So book four of the psalm starts with Psalm 90. Psalm 90 is neat because it's a psalm of Moses. And actually, when you read it, you're so used to like the sons of Korah, you got to feel for them, you have feel for David, even Haman and Ethan and everything. And then all of a sudden you get to Psalm 90. And it's, it's Moses, it's neat. So uh, it's not one of the ones we're studying, but you should, if you find time, read Psalm 90 this week, this Psalm of Moses. And he goes back to covenant remembrance which is, I think, a really important thing to do, like coming out of exile or on the tail end of exile, even in exile. Remember the covenant. He says, remember who we are and remember whose you are. Okay, so, so remember that. So, and actually, all of Psalm 90 is very reminiscent of Moses' speech in Deuteronomy 32. So if you wanted to do a little extra work sometime, Go and look at the parallels between those two and just see. Um, and basically what he says in a nutshell is this. And, the, and all the, the Psalms in book four are saying this. Fellowship with God himself is the greatest thing. We lost the temple and we lost the king in exile. But we learned that God himself is the permanent dwelling place of his people. And he is actually the perpetual dynasty. So remember what God's people wanted. They wanted a king. They wanted a dwelling place, right? They were going to have the land and they were going to have a king. And that was Israel's flourishing, was through their land and through their king. And actually they come out of exile and what they, the psalmist is trying to, to show and what the psalmist has learned is that actually God himself is the dwelling place. And God himself is the dynasty. We don't need David, right? It's okay. We were asking in book three, where's the king? God himself is the dynasty and the dwelling place. So lots of the Psalms in book four are kingship Psalms. They're exalting God as the king. There's this phrase that's repeated very many times through this book. And it's in Hebrew, it's Yahweh Malak, and it probably is translated in your Bible as the Lord reigns or the Lord is king. So you're looking for all the little references to God, at God himself as king. So we've moved sort of beyond this, like, 
where's, where's your anointed? Where's David? What about David? What about David's line? And it's this realization that God is actually king. And the book ends with Psalm 105 and 106, which interestingly in the CSB, they're given these titles. God is God's faithfulness to Israel is 105. And then 106 is Israel was unfaithful to God. <laughs> sort of title could be titles for the whole Old Testament, couldn't it? Right. Um, but basically 106 is quite long and it goes through sort of their whole, it's one of those historical Psalms. It goes through the whole history and it's basically saying, remember the covenant and the last, some of the last verses, these are the last verses of book four say this. This is from Psalm 106. Save us, Lord, our God, and gather us from the nations so that we may give thanks to your holy name and rejoice in your praise. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Let all the people say, Amen. Hallelujah. So it's this call for God to save them and gather his people from all the places they've been scattered and exiled. He, they're saying, gather your people. So where we're going to stop this week is Psalm 91 and 92. And here is where I have nothing to say to you. Because, and I think I did this last time, so I'm okay. But I, I read Psalm 91 and 92 in the last couple of days. And I thought, why did I, why did I choose those Psalms? There's so many other great places. Why? But I, the thing is, I had a reason. Like, I know, I just, I, I can't find it. So, but I will, I will find it by next week because remember I said that about Psalm 88 and now it's my favorite Psalm. So there's hope. Hang in there with me. Here's the problem. Okay. I got to be real serious with you right now. Okay. Hear my heart. I love you all. We are all together under the refuge of God. But when you read Psalm 91, you are going to read this repeated word, plague, 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 pestilence, 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 plague, plague, plague. This psalm is not about COVID. I didn't choose this psalm because it's about COVID. And I, I don't, I want us to be very careful not to use Psalm 91 as like, um, fodder for the COVID war that God is on our side. Oh, well, yeah, there we go. God's word is truly timeless, is it not? <laughs> Here's the thing. Just keep in mind, okay, that Satan uses the, the words from Psalm 91 when he tempts Jesus in the desert. So, so before you're going to become COVID warrior with Psalm 91 as your sword, please, please just, yeah, maybe go read um, the Gospels and the Temptations and, and see how Jesus is attacking arrogance and using these same verses, okay? I mean, sorry, not Jesus, I'm misspeaking. I do this on the podcast and then I listen to it and say, oh, I really misspoke. Okay. Satan is trying to, like, using arrogance to tempt Jesus. He's tempting him towards arrogance using Psalm 91. So just keep that in mind. Um, however, Psalm 91, I think, answers, tries to answer the question, what does it mean for God himself to be the permanent dwelling place of his people? 
So we're saying, what does it mean to dwell in the presence of God? What does it mean for God to be our dwelling place? For God to be Israel's dwelling place. I think it continues on from these thoughts from Psalm 84 and 88. And also the first night we talked, the very, very first night we were together, we talked about God being our refuge. Remember, we saw it in, in um, Ruth. Um, and it's all through the Psalms, it's really important. This idea of God as a refuge, what does that mean? And then, okay, what does it mean for us today in our climate, in our world? What does it mean for us to have God as our refuge? Then Psalm 92, oh, okay, here, here's why I picked it. What does it mean for God to be the perpetual dynasty? What does it mean for God to be king? That he himself is the king. And also, interestingly, an uh, interesting thing, you'll see if you read the title to Psalm 92, it's a song for the Sabbath day. I love that. So I think that's very interesting. That's all that I have to say to you, but I hope as you're reading it, that in the back of your mind, you'll consider what does it mean to mature in your faith even through suffering, okay? This is where we begin. This is where we're coming from out of this suffering, seeing that there is hope. So what does it mean for faith to mature, to have spiritual sight when it comes to these ideas of God as king and God as refuge and dwelling place, okay? Um, let me end with this this quote by author Sky Jitani. Oh, first of all, Gerald Wilson, he says this, the um, book four, the point of book four is to redirect the hopes of the reader away from earthly kingdom, earthly dwelling, earthly dynasty to the eternal kingdom of the Lord, which is what we were already talking about. This idea of eternity is what makes all this make sense. Okay. And uh, this author and teacher that I love, his name is Sky Jatani. He says this, a mature faith means learning to sing despite our feelings and not just in response to them. We all face midnights when our circumstances are dark and our hearts become cold toward God when we do not feel like singing. Yet that is precisely when we must sing. In the darkness, we begin with our voices and allow our hearts to follow. That is a mark of mature faith. So let that be true of us. Wherever you're at, thanks for studying along. It's our continued prayer that as you seek refuge in the sanctuary that is the Psalms, you're formed in real faith that you grow to delight in both God's law and his king, and that you know and experience firsthand the freedom and abundance found in covenant relationship with the Lord Jesus. If you want to connect with us, you can find us online at crossridge.church forward slash wstudy, or you can email us at carolyn at crossridge.church. Grace and peace to you, and we will see you soon.